Hello and welcome to another episode of Unofficial Partner, the sports business podcast. I'm Richard Gillis. Today's guest is Moya Dodd, one of the most influential women in international football for the past two decades. In 2013, she was one of the first women in 108 years to be appointed to the FIFA Executive Committee, the governing body's key decision-making group. The former international player and lawyer led reform for gender equality, including greater inclusion in the decision-making process and for there to be a larger investment in the women's game. FIFA passed her proposals and added a requirement that every continent must have a board seat filled by a woman. But after four years of rigorous campaigning, Dodd controversially lost her place on the FIFA Council to another candidate who couldn't answer basic questions on the women's game. There would have been a lot of people who would have been happy if I was just an adornment for the photos. I wasn't happy to be that because, you know, it's a long way from Australia to Zurich. And if I'm going to go that far, that often, I I wanted to do something. But I, I was acutely aware that actually if I wanted to stay there for as long as possible, the best thing to do would be nothing. That was certainly a better survival strategy than agitating on, on issues. So I always knew that, you know, it was not never going to be a, a lifetime appointment from my point of view. I, I went into that room and saw people who'd been there for 20 plus years. And I believe in term limits. I don't think people should hang around too long because you need fresh thinking and fresh air. So what did the experience teach her about the cultural fit between FIFA and women's football? And what are the options available to take full advantage of the growing popularity of the domestic leagues growing up around the world? But we start by talking about FIFA's relationship with Saudi Arabia and the recent story that this year's Women's World Cup was to be sponsored by Visit Saudi. We reference a piece written by Dodd on this subject in the Sydney Morning Herald, which is available to read in the show notes of this podcast. Unofficial Partner is the leading podcast for the business of sport, a mix of entertaining and thought-provoking conversations with a who's who of the global industry. To join our community of listeners, sign up to the weekly Unofficial Partner newsletter and follow us on Twitter at Unofficial Partner. Um, so I had a bit of a lurgy last week and occasionally I'm going to cough and then I'll come back. Yeah. So you may have to do a slight bit of editing once we get rolling. Um, Me too, by the way, so don't worry. Coming from Australia, I'm supposed to be all like healthy and living in the sunshine. And It's, good. it's quite refreshing to hear an unhealthy Australian. Makes a change. Don't worry, I'll be back. I'll be back. <laughs> okay. And you're a Keegan fan? Yes. You've researched this, I take it. <laughs> I'm always interested in why people support teams that they do. So what's the connection? Is it just seeing him at a certain moment in your life? So football first crossed, well, professional football, watching top-level football first crossed my path when my family finally got a television when I was about 10 years old because colour arrived in Australia and my father finally relented and we got a television. And I remember seeing the football on TV and I was just absolutely captivated by it. And the first live game I ever saw on TV was the 1977 FA Cup final between Liverpool and Manchester United. You've got to remember there was hardly any football on television in Australia back then. And live football was, you know, once a year, literally, at the FA Cup final. So I, I, I asked my dad if I could stay up late and watch it, and we watched it together. And I loved watching Keegan play. I just thought he was marvellous. Liverpool lost that final, you might know. 
against Manchester United and I thought it was an outrage because I thought they'd played better and it was just a terrible injustice and that put me in the right frame of mind to become a Liverpool fan for the rest of my life, I guess you could say. I know this because my next door neighbour is Kelly. Okay. In that case, I watched the Liverpool Spurs Champions League final from next door to your house. Is she a dame yet? I can't remember. She might be at some point. Yesterday announced she's uh, leaving the FA after... Phenomenal it, 60 career. 60 years, 70 Absolutely years. phenomenal career. <laughs> there should be a statue. A, you should have a statue in Brighton. There is a terrible, terrible statue of Steve Ovette in Brighton, which is is up there with the the one of Ronaldo. Do you remember they did oh, one of God, Ronaldo? Oh, God, yes. Which, yeah, and it's up there. And I, I might start campaigning for one of Kelly on the seafront. By the same sculptor that did the Steve Ovette one. I'm, I'm <laughs> banking on that one. I really loved your piece on Saudi. I thought it was great. Statement of the very obvious, I thought. Well, you you know, sometimes you sort of, it's interesting that in terms of what you think is obvious or what I think is obvious, and then suddenly you think, actually, no, it's not obvious at all. It, and Who wasn't it obvious to? Well, why would they do it? How would they get there? I heard some of your other guests talking about it and, and saying how obvious it was to them that it was a poor fit. And yet, here we are, and, and yet it's, that was done. Well, in, in the end, it wasn't yeah. done too, you know, so that's... Yes, Okay. I'd love to get your view on what you thought when you initially saw the news that FIFA had, were lining up a deal to visit Saudi as a partner of the Women's World Cup. What was your first response? I just thought it was a terrible fit, a terrible, terrible fit for the product, for the audience that we have in women's football to be telling them to go and visit Saudi. And the strongest and most inarguable reason, I think, for that is that the audience is one that gathers around the idea of women's empowerment, of gender equality, of inclusion. It's a, it's a very LGBTQ-friendly group of fans. And the idea that this group, that it, that it would be anybody's successful marketing strategy to send that group to Saudi or to advertise visiting Saudi to this group, it just seemed to me like a very, very... A misfit, a real misfit, just did not match at all. Not to mention that the laws in Saudi regard even consensual same-sex relationships as criminal and, you know, you can be subject to the death penalty. So for an organisation that has human rights obligations in its statutes and has a human rights policy in place and, you know, it it, it was just unimaginable how this could pass any responsible business test if you talk about you know, respecting human rights, protecting, embedding human rights in your activities, not making things worse for people, not putting people at risk. It's hard to imagine a worse thing to do than to take a group of people and send them to a place where they would be regarded as criminals and potentially subject to the death penalty. And you're essentially selling them into persecution. So I could not make it make sense. No. And the obviousness of your point, you know, that... You think? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I thought so. I thought so. And yet you get there. So I'm just, I'm really interested in, and I I'm, I'm, couldn't agree more with what you've just said. And yet it wasn't done as a deal, but it came very close and was lined up. And I'm very interested in how that could happen. And I think we get to, in, I think it's a, it's a microcosm, I think, this deal. The reason I'm really interested in this is that it contains lots of the themes that I think we knock against quite a lot in this. So there is incentives on the commercial side. Someone somewhere is incentivized to do a big deal with Saudi and on a personal and corporate level, make a lot of money. And that's justification 
because that money will then, the story, and I'm a journalist, so I get the story that comes towards you, which is the money will grow the game, the money will be invested, the, you know, we need the money, etc. So there's the commercial agenda of a governing body. You've got the cultural question, the culture fit, that this just feels so weird and odd and you know, no, I, no bad ideas in a brainstorm. Hang on, hold your, hold my beer. <laughs> this is a terrible idea. So you've got culture, you've got commerce, but you've also got the argument, which again, you, you'll be very familiar with, is, is football the disinfectant? Is that the light that is going to be brought to Saudi? And FIFA as change agent, engagement. When does engaging with, with regimes that I don't like become appeasement and do we just isolate them so i just think within this one deal there is a lot going on that you'll be very familiar with well let's start with the last question first can football be you know the light that shines or the disinfectant that takes you know difficulties and turns them into you know it's kind of magic wand right is football the magic wand that's going to fix things i mean i think there'd be criticism for a kind of you know, cultural superiority around thinking that the European way or, or white Western ways are the right ways. And if only everyone would listen to white European ways a little more, then, you know, the world would be a better place. So there, there and there is a, it's, it's not to say that there's no merit in those ways, but I, I think it is easily criticised for that. So I think to answer your question, I, I do think football can do a huge amount of good. I absolutely do. I think Football for good is a growing movement. Football for purpose is a growing movement. And there is genuine good that can be brought about from that. And I think actually that's football's salvation in the end, really, is to remember that it's not just about football for football's sake, it's it's about football for society's sake. So I do think there's something in that. And I don't think that that involves necessarily a kind of, you know, cultural superiority or one culture imposing on another, because I think football's values are pretty clear and pretty universal. You know, football is fundamentally a game where you expect fairness, you expect everybody to have an equal chance to be judged on merits, and to be able to find common ground for the field to be, you know, a place where people can come together and understand what they have in common rather than look at each other and, and find differences and, and reasons to draw apart. So, you know, all of those fundamental universal values of football I believe in, and I do think football can do a lot of good. I have had some engagement with Saudi football people over many years. I've, you know, had long conversations with, with participants. I remember meeting women players who were playing essentially behind closed doors in secret, behind walled compounds, because it wasn't legitimised for them to play. And I am I am genuinely happy that it's come so far. I think it's terrific that the Saudi Federation is opening to women and to women's football. I know some of the people who are involved in that progress, and I genuinely admire them, and, and I admire the progress. That doesn't mean that you can send this audience safely to visit Saudi. So, you know, those two things are not in conflict, I don't think. You ask how FIFA could get to the point where it almost did this deal. I don't know. I'm not on the inside of FIFA anymore. I think you could, you, you could, you know, let's take a guess at it, though. You've suggested that perhaps women's football has come into, come to be much more commercially attractive and suddenly FIFA's gone, 
wow, you know, we can make some money here. Look, that might be part of it. I think they certainly are conscious that it's a big commercial asset. But if you really wanted to make money out of it, you think you'd find a better marketing fit. You know, it, it doesn't sound like it was driven from kind of pure commerciality because it just seems so uncommercial, to be honest. It's possible also that it's part of a bigger deal that's that's mm-hmm. not centred around women's football. I did wonder whether there was, you know, a large amount of money, a big bucket of money somewhere, and it was going to be placed against different tournaments. We saw Visit Saudi pop up in the Men's World Cup, in the Club World Cup, and, you know, you could perhaps imagine a scenario where where value was being allocated to different tournaments and the idea that it would be allocated against the Women's World Cup, you know, somebody kind of thought was thought was a good idea because they hadn't thought about it deeply enough or realised what a clash in values it was or how important those values are to this audience. And I think that is that is a real difference. I think the audience, it's for some reason, the, the gender of the players seems to have an outsized influence on the attitudes of those who are watching the game. And we do see very different audiences consuming football very differently across men's football and women's football. And I, I think, you know, that at the heart of it is... A, a really interesting and you know that that's actually incredible development and and it's an important realization for the world of sports marketing to to try and deeply understand how those differences will be borne out in the marketplace because you know if, if you imagine a world where imagine a school that was just a boys school right and then one day someone said you know what we're going co-ed as of next year there's going to be girls at this school. And you go, oh, okay, well, what needs to change? Okay, oh, maybe we should have some girls' toilets or should we have women teachers? Do we already have women teachers? Mm, No, not many. Should we? Should the curriculum change in any way? Should the playground equipment change in any way? You know, what, what do we need to rethink about all of this? And I believe that we are just at the start of that process in women's sport and especially in football because always and forever... It was a sport invented by men, played by men, watched by men, and all of it occurred for the benefit of, of, of men, really. And women had no place. I mean, they were, they were banned, as, as I'm sure your listeners know. And it took a very, very long time to fight our way onto the field to play at all. So that was kind of the first stage, to be legitimised on the field. FIFA didn't hold a women's tournament. They didn't actually run a game of women's football until 1988. And I played in that game. It was the first one in the, mm. in the Pilot World Cup. The Olympics came in in 96. And, you know, this is not that long ago, really. I mean, mm. it, it's, it, it's in my lifetime. And I'm not that old, obviously. So, you know, it, it's been a very rapid progress since then. But getting onto the field, just getting onto the field without the rest of it following, just means that you you generate a bigger and bigger cost. It just becomes a bigger and bigger cost because more and more women want to play. The competitions get bigger and bigger. They want more competitions. You have underage competitions. People want to start leagues and they go running around demanding equal pay. And people just think, oh, my God, this bill is getting just too big. And, you know, for a long time, I think women's football didn't progress as fast as it could have or should have because it was seen as unprofitable and it was never going to wash its own face. Therefore, the best thing to do was just to go through the motions but keep the cost down. And I think that has that that has retarded the growth of the sport for decades. 
What we have not seen, I think, until more recently, is governing bodies, rights owners, sponsors, broadcasters, all acting as if it actually was worthwhile, that this is a viable creature that we have here, and we should should start treating it as such. And, you know, I, I think that is still very much a work in progress, a, as is the piece on governance. We still don't see significant or large numbers of, we're certainly not proportionate numbers, of women in government, governance making these decisions. Okay. So I really like the school analogy. That's a, I've not heard that before. I really like that as a, it frames it really well. And just to close off on the Saudi deal, you've got, that feels like the way you, that you're putting it is that it's a, the, the Women's World Cup was sort of almost collateral damage in this, in that they, were, they, they got some of the money, but the money is actually, it's all about 2030 Men's World Cup and the FIFA-Saudi relationship, and it's being framed as a visit Saudi thing. You don't have to say yes or no to that, but that's my... Well, I don't actually know. I mean, no. it is incredible that, that FIFA could remain silent for six weeks about this before actually clarifying whether they were or weren't. Uh, where does that happen in the commercial world? Where you have important questions being raised by relevant stakeholders and there's just silence. Well, I guess it gets to the, the other points that you were raising there. The history of FIFA and women, as you've outlined there, and it's still an enormous amount of cultural change work that needs to be done. And we all know in any walk of life, in any business, that is really hard yards. It is. So... Welcome to my life. Is it, <laughs> is it, I guess the question now is, is it worth that just labour of culture change, governance change? It's men thinking about men. That's the, that's the world of football. And actually the women's game is better off outside of that. And you, it, it's created its own sort of, its own version of FIFA, a WTA type of organisation which runs the women's game, which and we had Cara Nortman on, who I know you know, you know, on here. And she, her phrase was, you know, you need people who wake up and, and go to work at 8, 8 a.m. and think about women's football. Women's football across clubs, across FIFA is a 5 p.m. conversation, you know. So, and I think that frames it really well. There's a sort of just the priorities, opportunity cost of, of not acting. It's always an afterthought. Why not just focus have an organization that focuses entirely on the women's game and see where that you know whatever that whatever the makeup of that is and and that could occur at various levels right i mean it could occur at club level or organizational level it could be a more independent department within a larger organization that has more autonomy and has guaranteed funding there's a number of ways to achieve what you're talking about and i think the two most important kind of i guess you know organisational things that you need to achieve in women's football. Firstly, you need focus. So you need, you need people who wake up and it's the first and only thing they think about all day. It's not on the bottom of the list and it's not something you do as a sort of side hobby or as a, you know, a second line of business. If you can imagine, you know, Encyclopedia Britannica woke up one day in the, ooh, what would have been 19, late 1990s and found out that one of its employees had in their spare time, created Google. And they're like, oh, what are we going to do with this? And they're like, well, you know, keep working on it. It seems like a good idea. Mm, not sure it's viable, you know. I mean, how many people have computers or internet or broadband or, you know. And so it might just kind of toddle along 
in the, in the back lanes of the R&D department somewhere, someone sitting behind a pot plant, you know, in the, way in the back of the office. <laughs> and, and where would Google be now if, if that's how it got its start in life? I mean, I know sometimes people compare women's football to startups, and I think that that has some, you know, there's some merit in that analogy. It's not, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take it too far. Because actually it's a startup that is uh, quite intertwined and somewhat dependent upon football entities that are definitely not startups. And in many cases, they're actually monopolies, which is what national sporting organisations are and what international federations are. They are monopolies. And uh, trying to get a startup to thrive in that environment is very challenging. I mean, it does, I think, require focus, sort of extreme focus. And the second thing I think it requires is expertise. And there, I see time and time again the mistake being made that because somebody has run men's football that they automatically know what to do to run women's football. And that could that occurs in the coaching arena, it occurs in management, marketing, it occurs in all sorts of disciplines actually. And mm. I think that is, you know, it's a bit like taking the headmaster of the boys' school and saying, oh, hey, we're, we've, you know, we're going to have girls in the school now just do your thing. You know how to run a school. Get on with it. And, you know, what, what that headmaster would need to do is, like, really think deeply and lean in and listen hard to what they need to learn. Or better still, find someone who knows about running a girls' school, get them across and say, look, I need your help. Here's, I'm going to empower you to grow this part of the school and make it the best it can possibly be. Back to your Google point, the other route is... If you, if you look at this purely as an, an investment, global women's football, professional football, the other route is a private route, a more of a Formula One route, a, an IPL route, where you have a limited closed league, franchises, it's the money, the best versus the best. It removes a lot of the potential problems of nascent professionalisation you know, which is clubby country, calendar chaos. You can see, start to see it already that calendar decisions made in one place are going to impact and have ripples elsewhere. Players are going to be, you know, they're going to make rugby players look quite well organised. You can see the issues. They're, again, they're obvious issues, but they're difficult issues. What about that? What about a, where would a women's IPL of football stand in all this? Because if I've got and by the way, I'm not a billionaire, or if I am a private equity person, again, I'm not one of those, but there's some merit in that. What would be the implications of that? Is that a realistic route? Well, it sounds a bit like you're talking about an ESL for women's football, but but beyond Europe, global. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, probably. But the, the difficulty is the club brands. Mm-hmm. So, you know, would they, and their role in it, I guess if you transpose this conversation to America, you've got Angel City, which is, I think, the best example of a brand that's been created around women's football, a club brand. And I think club brands are the really difficult work in marketing in in sport generally. You're seeing it across the board. It's really hard to create fandoms around clubs. It's easier to do it on a national level. But what we're talking about here is sustainable, sustainable professional game that builds on the basis that we all agree has been made over the last... 20 years? Well, I think creating an ESL in women's football, which I know was the idea was tossed around by the ESL proponents, might have some attractions just to basically harvest the biggest brands and turn it into a juggernaut. But, you know, it's highly problematic in 
what it leaves behind and whether it's sustainable. I mean, I think I think there's a range of issues just to go back to to what you were what you're referring to in kind of separating something out from the rest of the football ecosystem. You know, there are there are consequences for that, for breakaways, and if that meant that the the head was sort of torn away from the rest of the body, then you you have to think about development pathways, you have to think about the stability of, of player development, a lot you know, a lot of things flow from that sort of separation. And I think to to say and I also think it's it's not necessary to do that in order to promote the professionalization of women's football because we are seeing that emerge in leagues around the world already. And in fact that is where it is emerging. I mean it's it's I know back in the day when I was playing for the national team, I used to look across to the Americans and feel a bit jealous that they were getting paid, you know, a livable wage to play on the national team, whereas I had to, you know, have a job and pay my own airfares and, and do it essentially as a as a side hobby. But now that leagues exist, professional leagues are emerging around the world, those are places where that professionalism can grow organically and that will grow the population of pro players, that will grow the quality of the product and it will also actually help the quality of the national team competitions because actually that's where all the good players come from. They come from clubs with a good daily training environment and they play from leagues that provide them with a good level of competition. So that is really, I, I see the, the domestic leagues as the development hothouses for women's football and to actually take out a subset of those in an ESL style competition would be damaging to what leaves, what is left. I think it's actually more important to focus on creating the conditions where those leagues can prosper, ensuring that they have workable calendars, making sure that the international match calendar doesn't eat into their viability and, you know, that, that those windows are of a, a length and a frequency that don't interrupt the rhythm of a league or, the, or what broadcasters and sponsors require from leagues. You know, those are the sort of things that I think are really important to making sure that professionalism can thrive. I think, in a way, it's kind of running up the white flag to say, look, you know, our best option is to find 12 or 16 or whatever teams globally and just kind of run off with it and make them professional and everyone else can just go, well, you know, whatever. I mean, we'll run off with most of the revenues and we'll leave the rest to look after themselves. I think that's that's a very... That that's a much poorer outcome than the one that we we can now realistically look to achieve through the professionalisation of domestic leagues, and they're now emerging, you know, all around the world. It's just really important to make sure that they have the oxygen to survive. Okay, so we're 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 discounting that, and so we're back to culture change, and we're back to you know changing the status quo. There's a brand question here. When you fundamentally look at the women's professional game, we're talking about two different audiences, are we? How much of a crossover is there between an Arsenal men's fan and an Arsenal women's fan, a Southampton women's fan and a Southampton's men? This is a very English sort of question. But I think it's important because actually when you're looking at the commercial assets, it seems to me, again, hardly an obscure thought, but you're looking at if you've got different audiences, you've got a different aud- commercial audience for it. You've got a different treatment of the product. You've got a different potential pool of sponsors that you're going to engage with who are going to use it for different reasons. Now, within FIFA and within the, the, the men's game, call it that, 
you've got the danger that they're just going to try and bring everything together and it starts to mirror very closely the men's game. So there is a same or different question. And protecting that difference, and I've been at, you know, women's internationals, the Euros last year over here were sensational, but it was a very different atmosphere. It was very, you know, and I can't, I've used the different word several times now, but how do you then within the structures that exist protect that or promote that or make that commercial argument because the commercial argument is important because it's quite often drives other changes as a threshold point i would say that the development of the pro leagues are really important to you know to cultivate those differences because they are largely run by different entities to the men's leagues the men's pro leagues and so that gives room for a whole lot of different thought often it's the same clubs involved but it's typically different entities that run the league. Sometimes it's federations, sometimes it's separate women's leagues. I mean, you look at the NWSL, and you've, you've mentioned Angel City a few times. Angel City is the highest revenue-earning women's team in the world, I believe. You know, off pretty much a standing start in, mm. what, two years, three years max? Only been playing for one. And they're the highest... Re- so, you know, this is what happens when you wake up and that's all you think about. The league is also making... So just a quick challenge on that, Moya. Hmm. Sorry, again, this is a question I asked Sue Campbell when, when she was on here. And it's, you couldn't set up Angel City in the WSL. Well... So that opportunity won't is not allowed yeah, I, because I, it, I it's, it's going to be I mean, run t- by the Premier League clubs. Typically, the European approach, with a few exceptions, has been, you know, if you want to be a really good women's club and women's team... What you do is you find a good men's club and you get them to adopt you, right? And they they pay the bills and they stand behind you and they subsidise you for as long as you need to be subsidised. And the benefit of that is you get to use these wonderful brands like Barcelona and, you know, Chelsea and Arsenal. I mean, you know, Angel City didn't have that choice. Most of the the clubs in America don't have that choice. There's not there's not a Barcelona in America of a of a brand of that that size and that reach and that clout. So it makes... And that's the... Sorry, again, to interrupt, but you can see where I'm going. But actually, Angel City were liberated by that because they didn't have a men's... There is no men's Angel City, so they don't have to... Correct. ...play by the same game, the the same tropes, the same uniform, the same expectations, all of those things, the fan experience, all of them, you you can go and do what you want. Whereas if you are Liverpool, Arsenal, Man United, Spurs, whatever... You, well, that, that, that's the, an, it's that's a very a interesting question, the, the integration or the differentiation of the men's team and the women's team within the one club structure. Certainly, if you're a women-only club, as Angel City are, as Glasgow City are, there are a number of others, Canberra United, then you don't have any constraint in how you market yourself or the choices that you make. But you also don't have the, the benefit of, of you know crossover with the brand and the enormous yeah. value that that brings, access to a pool of fans and a... And, you know, and not to mention infrastructure, capital, back office, all those things. But there are cases, interesting cases, where clubs have had common ownership, but they've still chosen to, to brand and to name and even to have different colours across their men's and women's teams. And Portland's probably the best example of that. I mean, their ownership is, is changing, but they have for a long time been owned by the same owner, and yet you had different names, different colours even quite distinct fan groups. It's not to say that there wasn't crossover, but they just, you know, chose to chose to buy two different products. Some people bought both, mm. some people bought one. But I think you you were you were 
coming back to how do, how do you honour the differences? How do you preserve the, the different mm. qualities and not just let it all get kind of mixed into one big integrated melting pot? But I think that's a choice, right? I mean, if you're a Chelsea or a Liverpool, well, you don't need to bemoan that you're not Angel City. You actually have more assets going into it than Angel City started with a few years ago. But you have a choice as to how you run that team, to how you, how you market it, how you set up its brand values. And you might say, look, we're going to play in the same colours, and that might be great because you might get a lot of crossover fans that way. But you don't have to. It's a choice. So I think it's a matter of, of the, the rights owners, the club owners, making conscious and well thought through decisions about how they get the best of both worlds. I mean, if you're a European club or club competition and you've got big brands, global brands, sitting in, in your asset pool, well, fabulous. Um, you know, you're starting a few laps ahead of where Angel City had to start. But learn the lessons from watching how they went about, you know, with like a laser focus and a real commercialism that was unhindered by any pre-existing sort of views about how the product had to be sold or who their who their fans would be. Of course, there's differences. And I think the more that realisation enables fresh thinking about how the product is developed and, and marketed and sold, the more that the different... I mean, you talked a bit about, you know, how much audience crossover is there. I think often the same, the same people do, do support both men's and women's football, but sometimes they exercise or they, they call up different values as they do so. I mean, I'm not sure how many of the same actual people were in Wembley for the women's Euros final and the men's Euros final. There might have been a, quite a crossover, but, you know, they, they, as, as crowds, they behaved quite differently. I think that is, that is the understatement of the year, isn't it? Because I don't know. I'm not a marketer. Your listeners are way smarter than me when it comes to this stuff. But it just seems to me that, you know, if you've, been, if you've sent a girl along to that boys' school and she's been treated like a boy, then maybe there's something you're not developing in her. Okay. You were inside the beast, you know. So 2013 to 2017, you were on the FIFA Council. And you then didn't get re-elected and the person who won couldn't name the, the winner. And there's a story there that, you know, is often told around your, your sort of FIFA experience. What did you get from that four years within that world? Oh, so many things. I mean, I got to go inside a room that had been up until then pretty much entirely male for 108 years before they let in well, one woman that was Lydia Nascara who went in a year before I did. But, I, you know, I got to see up close and personal what an organisation is after 100 year, 108 years of all-male rule. I got to see the people, I got to get to know them. I could observe the culture and the interrelationships a little bit. I learned a huge amount from that. And I was actually very grateful that I was there when the FIFA gate scandal broke because that opened up a whole set of possibilities for reform that simply didn't exist before that happened. I mean, they were unthinkable ideas, you know, that you'd have term limits and, you know, to get gender equality and human rights into the statutes of FIFA, they'd have thought you were completely barking mad if you'd suggested that a year before. I mean, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have even got to finish the conversation if you'd suggested that. It was just too, too impossible. And yet, you know, that was part of the reform package that went through in 2016. There's a lot of things in the reform package, which I think I'd call them works in progress. But there, you know, there's a lot of obligations on FIFA. FIFA has promised in its statutes and in its re and, and told itself in its regulations that it will do a lot of things that I think has 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 helped reset the context for its thinking around women's football somewhat. I think there's still a long way to go, 
but I think it has been it has been you know a, a, a one of the footholds for progress. So I was very glad that I was there for that part. And do you think cultures change? Do you think it's do you think that's possible? I look at Infantino now, and I I think there's someone who has got to the top in that culture. And I now look at the you know you mentioned terms, and we all know that you know the election he comes through unelected and doesn't feel like he's the sort of person that's going to lead a culture change. He's the person that's thrived from the culture. Well, I believe that culture is deeply systemic in institutions like this, and it almost doesn't matter who you put in there. Eventually, either they, they will either, either they will change the culture, they'll be an agent of change, or they'll become part of it. And, you know, the, the, the nature of sports governance is that monopolies rule at every federations are monopolies. In fact, if they are so bad at being a monopoly that they allow there to be, you know, a breakaway competition or something like that, then they get tossed out until the breakaway competition goes away and then they get let back in again. So that kind of makes itself reinforcing in a way, right? So that just reinforces those monopolies. And then you have groups of monopolies that form at confederation level and ultimately at FIFA level. So, you know, it's quite different to what you see in clubs and leagues because at least you know they are very competitive with each other they compete for players and points every weekend etc so it's a different vibe i think in national federations but ultimately the only people who vote at fifa are national federations so it you are when you stand for office all of your constituency are monopolists and nobody apart from that constituency has any say in who goes up to be part of the FIFA Council and make those decisions. So, you know, the nature of the beast, the nature of sports governance, not just football, actually, it's all, it's all sport, is that, you know, the, the, the currencies, not just money, they're not just, you know, dollars, it, it's also position, votes, status, all of those things are part of the currency of what is sought after. My reading of your experience is that you came in and then you were there for four years. You did an enormous amount of work, a lot of good, a lot, you know, you were driving change and then they didn't re-elect you. And my reading is that the culture did that, that, that they thought, well, actually we'll, we'll have women on the board. Okay. That's a signal that we're happy to send, but we don't want them doing things. We don't want them changing things. We actually just, but they're a useful adornment when the photos are taken. Is that completely unfair? Um, I think there would have been a lot of people who would have been happy if I was just a, you know, an adornment for the photos. I wasn't happy to be that because, you know, it's a long way from Australia to Zurich. And if I'm going to go that far, that often, I, I wanted to do something. You know, I wasn't really, but but I was I was aware, I was acutely aware that actually if I wanted to stay there for as long as possible, the best thing to do would be nothing. That was certainly a better survival strategy than agitating on on issues but you know to use a cricket analogy there's no point being not not out at the end of the day and if you're going to get out you might as well get out hitting and hope that you can hit a few runs before you go so I always knew that you know it was not never going to be a a lifetime appointment from my point of view I, I went into that room and saw people who'd been there for 20 plus years and I didn't you know I believe in term limits I don't think people should hang around too long because you need fresh thinking and fresh air and you know, I think the other systemic issue that I faced was that I was a quota and I wasn't actually elected. I lost that election when I first went on, but I was co-opted for a year at a time and that was renewed twice. And then I sort of hung around for another year 
while waiting for an election that I eventually lost. But I was never elected to FIFA. I never won an election to get to FIFA. So I was in there with no vote and, you know, but I had the ability to attend meetings and receive all the papers and information and had the rights of, of a member. But the constituency that I was there to represent, I mean, when you are a quota, a women's quota, whether you regard that as women's football or or women more broadly in football, then, you know, that the fundamental problem is that the people who I was there to represent couldn't vote. So they had no way of returning me or throwing me out if they thought I was no good. There was just no sort of constitutional means through which they could participate in the democratic system because women's football was generally a, you know, a side hobby for for most of the federation. It was not the thing that determined which way they voted. I think you can be pretty sure of that. It was not the thing that determined how they voted. So however well I did, I mean, even if I'd done the world's best job on, on that, it wasn't going to mean that I could keep doing it. And you know, I was I was always conscious that I would have limited time and I needed to make the most of every day. I remember waking up the day after I was first appointed, which was for a year, and I, I woke up and thought, you know, I have 364 days left. What am I going to do? I need to get busy. I need to get cracking. And then figuring out, you know, what? how can you make an impact in an organisation like that? That's fascinating. One of the first questions I asked, actually, was what's the Women's World Cup worth? But I'm sure we'll get back to that later. Did you get an answer? No. Nobody would put a number on it. But it was obvious to me that it was worth something. And this is, you know, to, to get back to your original question around whether FIFA has decided that women's football is ripe for commercialisation and that's why they wanted to sign up a big sponsor. I think they do know that it's ripe for commercialisation. And I think putting in place a women's football commercial program that's dedicated to women's football is a good idea and to unbundle the rights is a good idea to test those markets as well but I have to say I think it's a bit rich to be scolding the broadcasters for underpaying because when you look at the history FIFA itself never put any value on the women's rights it sold them as part of a bundle and then attributed all of that value to the men's world cup so actually it has for decades trained those commercial partners and broadcast rights buyers to overvalue men's football and undervalue women's football. So I actually found it a bit rich to to be hearing a lecture about how, you know, the broadcasters were undervaluing it. I know that. We've known that for years. Part of the reason is because FIFA has never valued it. And actually, whatever value it generated was taken and attributed to men's football. Yeah, that's really interesting. There's a, there's a, the analogy there is that springs to my mind is 2020 cricket, actually, in the early days, that it was bundled into generic Sky you know, TV rights deals. And it wasn't for a while until they, re- you know, obviously it was popular, but they didn't know how popular because they never dared to put it out they didn't sell it and now the the opposite is true people are you know broadcasters are buying 2020 and, and are, you know having tests bundled in very interesting so uh, very interesting i mean the analogy that springs to my mind is that you buy a burger and you get fries for free on the side and then suddenly somebody says you know what people might actually just buy some fries maybe they they like that maybe there's a market for that guess what yes there is yeah. you know but, but you've there, been undervaluing them by giving them away <laughs> And then you complain that people yeah. don't want to play, pay for fries. Yeah, it's really interesting that because that sort of that 
the value of the product, I guess, is what we're talking about. And people don't like to use that word, but the, the product of the professional women's game, it's sometimes it's obvious the underinvestment and you see it. It's the, you know, there's a really interesting debate, I think, about ticket prices, about, you know, people, how valued you think you, you, one puts their own value on a ticket. And if you get it for free, you think, okay, I might turn up, I might not. Or if mm. I get it for a fiver, I'll get it for a tenner. But if I'm paying 70 quid, I'm turning up. And there is an issue there about the, the wanting to drive, get people in the stadiums to make it look like a proper professional entertainment event balanced with actually how sustainable that is as a, you know, if, if people aren't paying very much. And that's sort of, that's a really, it's a, it's a more granular question. But in terms well, of that value of... there's a fabulous story about that from Lewis FC, which I'm sure you know. Yeah. That yeah. they increased... Oh, that they started in 2017, only in 2017, with the with the situation of charging very little for women's games and a lot more for men's. They made a commitment to equal pay, and then they worked out how they had to alter their pricing or grow their revenues in order to fulfil that commitment. And they raised the price of the women's tickets while increasing the attendance because they showed people that they, they valued what was there, they improved the match day experience, they put Prosecco on tap, things like that, and gave people a good time. And and actually the key to that, I think, I think Maggie Murphy and Ed Ramsden and Charlie Dobbers and others would say, would be equal effort. They would put equal effort into their match day experience for both teams. They had two first teams and they put equal effort into each of them. And you know, that to me is the key. Like what efforts, you know, look at the aggregated historical efforts that have been put into commercialising men's football and then look at the aggregated efforts to commercialise women's football and it's a chasm. It's a chasm. And and I think that's why the dollars lag the reality of the attraction of the women's game. And, you know, we get these blinkers off moments where people suddenly go, you know what, I'm, I'm not approaching this as this somehow being a second best inferior game I'm watching just because of the gender of the people out there. But if I just come to it as a, as a match of football, I'm really liking it. And, you know, it triggers something, these blinkers off moment, I, I call them, where people lose their, their, their sort of default assumption about it being somehow second best or inferior because it's being played by women. It's not. And once you lose that assumption, you start to see it for what it's really worth. And you start to question why there is such a chasm in rights valuation, in investment, in ratings perhaps. I mean, those things will catch up, but the smart money, I think, will get ahead of that game. There's a, there's a, a really nice sentence. You did a piece in the Sydney Morning Herald, and I'm going to read it back to you to embarrass you. But I have no, it says, I have no quibble with an overdue correction to the long-standing undervaluation of women's sports fans. They are younger, funkier, more values-driven, more loyal and more digital-savvy than the average Joe six-pack in the stands or on the couch, which I love that paragraph, by the way, which sort of sums up what, what we're talking about here, about the point of difference. And I think anecdotally, everyone, and again, sorry to be almost become a cliche of referencing the Euros here because it was such a moment, in that everyone has had an experience where you're talking to people and, you know, young women who suddenly are talking about football in a way there's no way they you know football was their dad's game it was just like a it, 
the, you know, to your Joe six pack in the stands. Not that I've got a six pack, but the, uh, that whole difference is one that is really valuable. And as I say, it's that we're at a really interesting moment where the product and the market and the seem to be, well, they're within shouting distance of each other, which it hasn't been for a while. Yeah, I think it's, you know, the scale's falling off the eyes in a way. It's it's Equal pay is another debate that I find really interesting that's similar in some ways. I mean, you know, there was a time when, not that long ago really, where it was accepted that women in the workplace should just get paid less than men or should actually leave their jobs if they got married. I mean, that was that was actually the rules in the Australian public service in the in the as, as recently as the seventies, right? I mean, think back further. There were times when people thought it was okay to keep slaves. You know, I mean, whatever people thought was okay gets overturned and challenged over time because that's what you know the, the human progress is. And I think you know we should have got we, well. I think intellectually we've got past the point where we think yes, you know, men and women should get the same pay for doing the same thing but actually there's a lot of bits that haven't caught up and you know the whole kind of economic or the ecosystem I guess is still trying to catch up with with that revelation because it's not yet reflected in reality in most workplaces and certainly not in sport but I do think there is a you know if you're in charge of sport if you're in charge of anything in sport it's part of your job to address those shortcomings and fix them like it's your job to fix them so you know rather than kind of make an excuse for lack of equal pay because you know there aren't equal revenues or whatever maybe we just need to take the Lewis approach and say well let's not talk about what is let's talk about what we are going to make it be and then we'll figure out the way to get there and you know you might say oh that's all very well for a small club in Sussex but how are you going to do it at Barcelona and that's a fair question but you know, they did fill the stadium. They had 90,000 people in there, like twice in the space of a month. So it doesn't, doesn't feel that impossible, does it? And look yeah. how quickly that's happened. Yeah, absolutely. No, and, and it talks back to, I mean, governance is, a, is one of those really boring words people turn off on, but it does mean it's the sort of diversity in the boardroom, which is, you know, it's just a really important point. What do you think... Again, not it's, it's about football, but not necessarily about football, which is about quotas in boardrooms. And where do you stand on that, given your sort of experience um, of FIFA? Well, I was a quota, and I think there was no way I would have got in that boardroom otherwise. Mm. So I think if there are organisations where you think it's going to take a very long time or might never happen unless you have a quota, then have a quota. Make it happen. You know, start the process. I think... The election mechanisms, you know, if it's an electoral thing, if the same people are electing the quota as are electing everybody else, then you've got a problem because the whole point of a quota is to represent people who are not represented. So they shouldn't be put there by the same people who are already represented, the ones who are overrepresented, right? So there's kind of a logical disconnect there and that is a shortcoming in the, in the FIFA Council mechanism because the same people vote for the quota as, as the rest. But I think it's a useful, if blunt, tool. It's not as good as a sound, functioning, organic, bottom-up system where there is diversity and inclusion at all levels and you get a naturally occurring 
diverse outcome. And this goes not just for gender, but on a whole range of factors as well, which, you know, which fall short. Okay, well, listen, I'm very conscious. What time is it? You're in Adelaide, are you? I'm in Melbourne, actually. And my next meeting is in 40 minutes. <laughs> well, listen, it was lovely to, lovely to meet you. And uh, it'd be interesting to sort of see where you go next, because you're really, I, and keep writing your stuff. I, I find it, uh, you, your, your contributions are really, really important, but also so well sort of judged. So uh, thank you for those. Well, thank you. I mean, I should tell you I'm doing some work with the World Leagues Forum these days around women's football because I believe that national teams and national team competitions have brought us so far, but the next big accelerant in the growth of women's football will be the development of professional leagues, not only for players so that there can be more of them, hundreds of them in each country rather than just 23 playing at a a professionalised level, but also for fans because they'll see it week in, week out, every weekend rather than just, you know, in, in, in the odd moments in the calendar. So I think this is the this is really the you know the, the the place where we'll see professionalism properly emerge and the importance of having those leagues get the oxygen they need in the calendar particularly is just crucial is that a specific women's world leagues group because i know that there's the world leagues forum yes is it is it as within that or separate within that there is a group of women's leagues who meet, exchange best practice, share common interests, etc. It's relatively new. The first get-together was actually in London last year, the around the Euros final, which I was lucky enough to see. And, you know, it's, I mean, I think it's absolutely fascinating and exciting. There's no, no nowhere else, I'd, no other conversation I'd rather be in in football more than this one, because you're seeing the top professional leagues, the leaders in the professionalisation of women's football, come together and share what they're doing that's good, that's working, and help each other be better. And, you know, this is a crucial conversation because we have so many years to catch up. We have decades to catch up. And different things are being tried in different countries. I mean, the NWSL obviously has a different model to the WSL, you know, the Frauen Bundesliga. There's, you know, there's a good dozen or more professionalised or... professionalising leagues around the world and the opportunities they're creating for the for the next generation of players will be transformative. And where can people sort of find and engage with, with that forum? Well, if you go to the World Leagues Forum website, you will find a report on women's football that I wrote about a year and a half ago and, you know, periodic news of discussions that are had or things that have been developed or decided or shared amongst the group. But it's essentially you know, an industry group of players who are helping each other get better at what they do. And it's fabulous to see. There's always been a great spirit of cooperation in women's football. You you know, you just feel it everywhere you go. And it's great to feel it and see it happening at the top professional level. Okay. Listen, Moya, thank you very much for your time. Really enjoyed that. And hope your next next meeting is as, as good as this one. Well, it's about women's football, so I reckon it, I reckon it stands a decent chance. 